All right, we are in the study of Mark's gospel. We started this a few weeks ago. Uh, we've learned that Mark is writing to Christians who live in Rome. Probably this gospel is written uh, during Nero's great persecution. Uh, that was one of the most horrific persecutions uh, ever in the history of the church. It was localized. It was just Christians living in Rome. Uh, but the emperor used them as a scapegoat. And uh, what he did to them was just, it was torture in its, in its worst form. And Mark, really being a disciple of Peter, is writing this gospel to encourage them. And then even when you look at the first sentence of this gospel, where Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, uh, we learn that Mark is actually taking three technical terms that Rome applied to its Caesar and the empire that Caesar was unleashing. Uh, the beginning, uh, that's the Greek word arche, which refers to a new age or a new realm, the dawning of a new epoch. So the beginning, the dawning of, of, of a new age, the new epoch of gospel. A gospel, too, is, is a technical term that the Romans use. It's the word euangelion. Uh, it's not just news or good news. It's, it's literally the news of a world-changing event. And you can see why they are attaching these two terms to its Caesars, because they believe that the Roman Empire was just that, gospel, this world-changing event that was ushering in this new age, this new epoch of unprecedented did uh, shalom and prosperity. And if you're going to proclaim something that great, uh, you can't just have a ruler who's a mere man. So then they attach to the emperor this title, a son of God. And literally, uh, wherever you saw the emperor's name, whether it was on coins or uh, inscriptions, uh, on gates, uh, temples were even... Um, erected to, to worship uh, Caesar. You always had this, this title with, with Caesar, uh, Divi Filius, which is son of a god. And the church then, Mark, <laughs> in the first verses, has the audacity to take these terms and apply them to Christ and the kingdom that Christ is unleashing. And that's what Mark's gospel is about. It's about God's king in the kingdom that God's king unleashes. Which the prophets even told us about when they said things like, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who bring gospel, good news, who proclaim peace, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So what we're going to see today in our text today that we're about to read is we're going to get a front row seat to the good news of God's kingdom, namely it's Christ, namely the authority of Christ. Christ's authority. What it is, what that authority achieves, and how we can get it. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 1. Starting at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, 
they being Jesus and the disciples. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then a man who, in their synagogue, was possessed by an unclean spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Shut up, said Jesus. Literally, that's how it reads. Imagine if that happened in a church service. And there's a man here that was just shrieking and convulsing. And someone just looked at him and said, shut up. And he was clean. The impure spirit came out of the man violently, and it came out with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew to Simon's mother-in-law. By the way, anytime you see Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Um, Peter being also maybe the co-author of the Gospel of Mark. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. They went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because the demons knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to, our text says, a solitary place. It's a ramos tapos in the Greek, which literally means desert. Jesus went off to a desert where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to a nearby village so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So they traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was, I don't know why it says indignant. Because in Greek it's the word splogsomai, which literally means, refers to a person's guts. You can understand that, how that word could you know, splogsomai, it's, it's, it's literally your, your, your guts. Um, so it, it, it means when you're, when you're so, so torn up with compassion and hurt and mercy. That's what Jesus is when he saw this leper at his feet. Jesus reached out his hand and touched a man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. You can be seated. So Jesus is now launching his public ministry. And I love what, uh, what verse 37 says. Uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And I think this kind of sums up what, what, what's going on because very quickly as, as, as Jesus uh, goes public with his, with his ministry, uh, he, he has a rock star following. 
And yes, it's a bit localized. Uh, like in verse 33, it says a whole town, uh, Capernaum, uh, gathered at the door where Jesus was. Uh, Capernaum is a town at this time of about 2,000 people. Um, so it's not terribly big, but still, it's, it, it's a whole town flocking to Jesus. Then in verse 28, it says, news about Jesus spread immediately over the whole region of Galilee. Now that doesn't probably mean anything to you. These are just words. These are just labels. Um, Galilee is a region. And, and, and let me just quickly show you a map of Jesus' world. Uh, this, this map that you're looking at goes, goes by many names. Uh, Jews have always called what you're looking at uh, by its biblical name, Israel. Even today, that, that's, that's called Israel. Uh, Christians oftentimes call uh, this part of the world the Holy Land. But in Jesus' day, no one's calling it the Holy Land. No one's calling it even Israel. Uh, because when the Romans take over this part of the world, they name it Palestine. Uh, they name it Palestine after the Philistines. Because Philistines are, are a people group from their world. And even Palestinians to this day uh, still refer to the land uh, as, as, as Palestine. If, if you call the land Israel uh, to a Palestinian, that's, that's offensive to them. And, and, and vice versa, if you call Israel to a Jew, uh, Palestine, that's offensive to them. Because um, these are politically charged words. Now, three districts... Palestine was broken into three districts during the time of Jesus. Uh, the first is Judea. Judea is where Jews live who are steeped in kind of the old money and the traditional religion. They live in that area. Jerusalem is in the heart of Judea. And when you think Jerusalem um, in, in Jesus' day, you need to think Vatican because what the Vatican is to the Catholic Church Jerusalem is to the Jews. It's, it's the home to the temple. Uh, the temple is the centerpiece of Jewish life, Jewish identity, Jewish worship. Um, it's the home to all those who run the temple. Uh, the Jewish pope, the high priest resides there. All the religious uh, elites uh, who run the temple live there. And, and again, although Jerusalem, which comprises much of Judea, um, or leaves its mark uh, on Judea, is urban, it's actually very isolated. It's disconnected from the world. The other region is Samaria. Samaria is the home to the Samaritans. That's right above Judea. And in Jesus' day, there is intense racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans, much like there are tensions today between Jews and Palestinians. In fact, every Jew in Jesus' day avoided Samaria uh, to their best of their ability. They would even travel around it when they needed to. Then there's Galilee. Galilee is that green region uh, to the north. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, already describes Galilee as a land of the Gentiles. Because Galilee is comprised of Gentiles, Romans, Greeks. But even this started to change about 100 years before Rome took over, which is also before Jesus, when Israel became a free state, much like it is today. 
And just like today, where Jews now from all over the world are going back to live in Israel, uh, that same phenomenon happened uh, about 100 years before Jesus and Rome took over, where you had Jews from all over the world uh, coming to live, and the place that they live is in Galilee, and they're forming these cities, cities you don't see in the Old Testament, but now they're in the New Testament, um, cities like Nazareth and Capernaum and Cana and Bethsaida and Quartzen. What I want you to know about Galilee as a region is that it's a melting pot of all peoples, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, Romans. Also one of the major highways that connects the Eastern world with the Western world runs right through Galilee. So although Galilee is comprised of many small villages and it's more rural, it's still fiercely multicultural, and it's very connected to the world, which is why I think Jesus does a vast majority of his ministry in this region of Galilee. So now look at verse 39. It says, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, going into all the towns and villages, preaching and driving out demons. If you want to know why everyone's flocking to Jesus, why everyone's looking for him, this is why. And what I want us to first notice is Jesus came as a preacher. I mean, look at what he says in verse 38, the verse right before it. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. He came to preach. Wait, I thought the purpose for which Jesus came was for him to be born, to die, to be resurrected. And Jesus himself would say amen to all that, but he would also say, I also came to preach. Preach what? We're going to learn about that in, in, in Mark's gospel, but the kingdom of heaven is here. And over and over again, he's going to explain what the kingdom of heaven is and, and, and how people can participate and, and, and what it means uh, for, for us and for the world. But I love this. He came to the world to preach. I don't know why I love this so much. <laughs> I love that Jesus is a preacher. I mean, in our politically correct world, it's not cool to believe in truth. It's not cool to have conviction. It's not cool to preach. I mean, preaching today has fallen on hard times. There's lots of preachers, but little preaching. And we've already just read, John the Baptist is put in jail. Why is he put in jail? It's for preaching. His world couldn't handle the truth that he proclaimed. And he wasn't just put in jail for preaching, but he was killed for preaching. And who killed him? Herod did. Let me show you a picture. That's Tiberius. Herod the Great founded that city, which still exists today, on the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is in the heart of this Galilee region. He names it Tiberius after one of the most filthy, corrupt emperors of all time. 
This is the Herod who kills John the Baptist. You look across from Tiberias, his capital city, across the lake to the northern shore of Galilee, and you are looking at where Jesus does 70% of his ministry. I'm looking at across that lake where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, where he fed the 5,000, where he fed the 4,000. I'm looking at Capernaum. I'm looking at Bethsaida. They're all on this lake. Why am I showing you this? Jesus is preaching right under Herod's nose, the Herod who killed John the Baptist for preaching. I love the fact that Jesus preaches at the detriment to his own life. And I love what the text says that Jesus preached with authority. I mean, the people, when they heard him preach, it's right in our text. It says they were all amazed. Jesus spoke not as the scribes, but he spoke with authority. So I'm left asking, what does this mean? Well, the word authority in the Jewish language today is a technical term as well. It's the Hebrew word shmikah. Uh, In Jesus' day, you wouldn't be listened to unless you had shmikah. And shmikah literally means the laying on of hands. One of the first times this word shows up in the Bible is Numbers 27, 18 through 20. And this is what it says. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whose spirit, who has the spirit of leadership, and shmikah, lay your hands on him so he can stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and, and there knight him, commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. Shmikah is the laying on of hands. What's going on here is Moses is laying his hands on Joshua and the authority that God has invested into Moses is now being uh, passed on to Joshua. And Jews believe that this happened in every generation, that the authority is passed on through the laying of hands so that by the time you come to Jesus to have shmikah, to have this authority, you had to have another rabbi who had shmikah lay lay his hands on you. And in that, your authority was not just the authority that that rabbi had, but it went all the way back to Moses. In fact, this is why later in Mark's gospel, the scribes are going to come to him And they're going to ask Jesus, who gave you authority? Who laid their hands on you? Who gave you shmikah? And Jesus, I love what he does. He answers their question with his own question. And in that question, he's answering their question. He says, was John's baptism from God or man? And I love this. This should be fresh in your minds. What happened when John baptized Jesus. Remember, as Jesus came out of the waters, the, the text says the heavens were ripped over, open and the spirit like a dove descended upon Jesus and that voice then thundered, this is my son whom I love 
in whom I'm well pleased. And see, that spirit coming down like a dove from the heavens, being placed on Jesus, is God literally laying his hands on Jesus. In fact, one of my mentors, Ray Vanderlaan, who studied in a Jewish yeshiva, one day uh, his, his rabbi, speaking to the whole class, said, you know, the Christians sitting back there, referring to Ray, he follows the only rabbi in history who got his shmika, his authority, from God himself. And Ray said, literally in that moment, the hair stood up on his neck. He just began to cry. And see, Jesus, when it, when, when it says, they're, they're, they're talking about this, this new teaching, it, it, it's not new in that Jesus is teaching something that's clever. It's new in that it's authoritative. Because Jesus' teaching, his, his words, pack the power to, to repair and, and to restore what's broken, to change and to make new, to redeem and to resurrect He speaks to the demons, and they obey. He speaks to a storm, and it's stilled. He speaks to a grave, Lazarus, come out, and it happens. This is the kind of authority we are talking about. And we see even in Mark's gospel, his authority just leaves people dumbfounded. Who is this man? What's going on? And I'll tell you what's going on. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in. It's breaking into time. It's breaking into space. And it's achieving something very specific. Look at verses 21 through 25. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, began to teach. People were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the rabbis. And just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Shut up, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. See, when the kingdom of heaven breaks in, there will always be opposition. Because there's always an anti kingdom. An anti-kingdom that loves chaos, that hates shalom, that will do everything it can to destroy God's good creation, namely people who bear his image. If you want to know why there's abortion today, I just gave you your answer. And there's so many other things that you can put in that bucket. Why we call evil good and good evil. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what the Bible is, is the story of these two kingdoms. And from the beginning of the story to the end of these stories, these two kingdoms are in conflict. They are at war. I mean, we see this right at the beginning in creation. Uh, 
there's the kingdom, the kingdom of God, but then there's the anti-kingdom, the, the tohu vevohu, and creation is God making war on the tohu vevohu. Or how about when God entrusts his world to Adam and Eve? There's a snake. And when there's a David, there's a Goliath. And when there's a Samson, Gideon, or Deborah, they're Philistines. When there's an Elijah, there's a Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. In fact, wherever God's people are in the story, there are either Canaanites, Assyrians, Babylonians who are seeking to destroy them. And so now when we come to Christ, who's going to unleash the kingdom of God, we should expect massive conflict. We should be expecting this, this, this massive war between the kingdom of God and his Christ and the anti-kingdom. And in Mark's gospel, we're going to get front row seat to this conflict. It already starts in verse 13 of chapter 1. And when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, who shows up? Satan. And I love how Mark puts this. It says, and Jesus was with wild animals and angels attended him. Such a unique little detail. Like, why would Mark put in there, and Jesus was, was with wild animals? Well, it's because he's throwing, he's writing this book to Christians who are being thrown to wild animals for the halftime show. And he's also telling them, your battle is not against an evil emperor. It's much greater than that. That's why Jesus in Mark 11, when he's casting out demons, they say, they call him Beelzebub. And, and, and Jesus says, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of heaven has come. Because as Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers and the principalities of this dark world. And the kingdom of God has come in Christ to do war with Satan and the demonic. And I know for many of us in this room right now, that, 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 this, this seems a bit strange. Because let's be honest, in, in, in our modern world, we've been taught that we are, we're, we're much too sophisticated to believe in something satanic or demonic. I mean, it's too primitive and simplistic and naive. Uh, so then when we come to our Gospels and, and we read these stories of demon possession, uh, we just assume it's the Bible's way of explaining things like epilepsy or seizures or mental illness, things that we have now uh, explained away through modern science. But here is the deal. Our sophisticated modern worldview is actually quite shallow and overly simplistic. Because I believe that the ancients understood something that we moderns miss or have forgotten, and that is this, that behind the material world are spiritual forces, powers, and beings that could exude great destructive power over us. See, this is why the ancients had a God for everything. 
Everything under the sun. There's a God for health. There's a God for wealth. There's a God for wisdom, for beauty. There's a God for sex and a God for romance, a God for war, a God for sports. And why all these gods? Because they understood that money is more than money, that food is more than food, that sex is more than sex. That these things can exercise massive power over us because there are spiritual forces behind them. And if you still think the ancients are crazy in how they thought, well, tell me then why the teenage girl almost starves herself to death. Because food is more than food. And tell me why a man throws away a a marriage and a family for a secret life. Because sex is more than sex. Tell me why a businessman or businesswoman goes into full uh, blown depression over a failed business deal. Because money's more than money, sports more than sport. Why can't people give up their screens? Why can't someone give up a substance? Why are some people so dependent and affected by likes? Because there's spiritual powers behind these things. And this is why Jesus is is literally disinterested in taking on Rome or Herod or even the religious establishment of his day because he knew the battle is not against flesh and blood but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. And Jesus came with the authority to do that. In fact, to fulfill what God said to Eve and and, and to Adam and, and, and to Satan in Genesis 3, verse 15, after the world fell into sin and, and the curse infected everything, uh, leading to decay and death, uh, he, 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 he huddles them up in the wreckage of everything and says, let me tell you what's going to happen. Satan, a war is going to be waged throughout history between humanity and between you and the forces of darkness, yes, you, Satan, you will strike and you will hurt, but a day is coming when I will deliver a fatal blow and I will crush your head. And what we're seeing now in Mark is the beginning of this great confrontation. And I want us to see where it occurs. In a synagogue. In a house of worship. And the demons in this place, they they know who Jesus is. They know Jesus' mission. In fact, in verse 24, (laughs) what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And they have one option, just one And that is to submit to Jesus' authority, and they know it. Inside this room right now, there is more going on than meets the eye. There is an enemy in this room. Forces, dark forces, demonic forces, forces waging war right now. And I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying that to be biblical. 
And I don't want us to be naive. Not even of just that reality. And it doesn't just happen here in this space. It's going to happen when we leave here. It's going to happen in every sphere of our lives. Um, But I especially don't want us to be naive how much our enemy hates Christ. And therefore hates the Christ in us. And will do whatever he can to destroy us. But no one in this room should fear him. We're not talking about two equals, two heavyweights who are battling out. We're just wondering who's going to win. Look at our text. All these demons in the presence of Christ can do is beg, beg him. As I like to say in here, Satan is nothing but a lackey in the presence of Christ. He's a punk. Greater is he, greater is he who is in us than anything that is in the world, than anything that is coming at us. But the kingdom of heaven, God's reign breaking in, breaking out in Christ, it's, it's, it's even more than, than taking on Satan. But the, the kingdom of heaven is here to undo the curse, to take it on. This is where I think the children's books uh, depict uh, the rea- these realities as, as, as well as anything. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, whether you read the books or watched the movies, Um, If you remember when Aslan returns to Narnia, and Narnia is this place where it's always winter, but no Christmas. Like, that's perfect description. Always winter, but no Christmas. Except when Aslan, the great king lion, returns, the spell of the witch begins to break. Winter begins to thaw. Spring is in the air, and all creation is coming to life. And I don't know what your world is. I don't know the chair that you sit, the life that you're living right now, but the world I live in right now is constantly reminding me this world is winter. And the spell of the wicked witch is real. People get hurt, accidents happen. Things are taken away. Health, jobs, relationships, even life itself. Last week I came in here and I, you have to understand, for, for 18 years of this church, I, I come in here and I see Pat and Bruce, Bruce and Pat. And this time I see Bruce in an empty chair. And there's empty chairs in this room. And that's what we experience on Sunday, but someone like Bruce or Tammy Siner has to go home to an empty house and into an empty bedroom. And I did just get a text from Grant, Grant's wife, Rachel. Grant, who's in the hospital, just hanging on to life. And this is actually good news. She just texted me and said that he's going to get a trach. And this is just one step in the right direction. Nate and Jana, you prayed for them this morning. Uh, Libby and I visited them this week in Ann Arbor, and 
their newborn. Just precious little newborn psalm. Just chest open. They literally see his heart beating. Tubes hooked up everywhere. In the last day, it's just not going to a good spot. Pray for him. Even right now, pray for him. It's winter. There's hurt. There's pain. Again, it's the nursery rhymes that that capture it so well. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Humpty Dumpty is our world. Humpty Dumpty is life apart from God. And I'll be the first to say, if this world is all there is, it is one big dirty trick. Because all the king's horses, all the king's men, all the emperors, all the empires, all the presidents, all the politicians, they can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But Mark is here to tell us that there is a gospel, that there is a world-changing event, the dawning of a new age with a king who has come, who has the authority to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, to put our world back together. And Jesus will not stop until Revelation 21 and 22 become a reality when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. But let me make this personal. Because we're going to read about a lot of miracles in Mark's gospel. Jesus' miracles are the kingdom of God breaking in to make people whole. And not just whole physically, but whole emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Jesus is not just here to save us from sin. He is redeeming every aspect of our fallen, broken lives. And I've been taught to look at Jesus' miracles as proofs of his divinity. But you know what? Other people, Elijah, Elisha, they all did almost the same miracles that Jesus does. The miracles, what they do is they paint a picture of what the world one day will become. A world without fever. A world without leprosy. A world without war and violence and racism. A world without cancer. A world without plague and sickness. A world without starvation, addiction, and depression. Can you imagine such a world? Because that's what Jesus came. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. I come in here every Sunday and I, I look at Eric who's sitting right over here. The guy's a champion and a hero. You know what, Eric? In that day to come, I can't wait when you get your legs back to watch you run. It's going to be a joy. And we get our lives back. This is the authority of Jesus. It's the authority to unleash the kingdom of God, to make war, 
against the anti-kingdom, to put evil in its place, to defeat once and for all uh, the powers of darkness, to repair all that's broken, to restore the life that we lost, to reconcile us to God. And let me ask, has this authority touched your life? Has the kingdom of heaven broken in and is it starting this process of making you whole? Now, here's where I'd like to ask this question. How did Jesus get this authority? Because I think we just automatically think that Jesus has this authority because he's the son of God, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. And that's all true, but Philippians 2 also says that, that, that Jesus, when he came to this world, he emptied himself of all of his divinity, and he became like us in every way. And that's why I think verse 35 is just kind of right in the, in the heart of this text, where it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went out to the desert where he prayed. Why did Jesus pray? Why did he get up early in the morning? Why did he make his way to a desert? Because he had to. Prayer is the means by which Jesus fills himself with this authority. Later in Mark, uh, the disciples are... are, are Jesus isn't with them, and they're going to try to cast this demon out. They can't do it. Jesus finally arrives to the scene. Jesus then casts it out. Afterward, they ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that demon? Jesus' short answer, that one only comes out through prayer. And here's the deal. If Jesus had to pray, how much more do we The longer I'm a pastor, the more I understand that prayer is not just something that we add to our ministries. Prayer is the ministry. Think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. He's he's teaching us to pray, pray that God's kingdom would come. That heaven would come to earth, making earth like heaven. And prayer is how the kingdom of heaven is unleashed in our world. Prayer changes the world. Uh, Prayer is actually how we as as Christ followers live into our vocation as a kingdom of priests. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says the church's vocation is prayer. He says to be in prayer, perhaps even wordless prayer, where our world is in pain. Or let me say that backwards. Where our world is in pain, there we, the church, are to be in prayer. And I want to just say this, that I'm calling this church to pray like we've never prayed before. And I know some of you right now are like, I don't really know how to pray. I, what, what, listen, even the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And one of the ways that, that, that we learn how to pray is simply by doing it. And there are people that are, are putting their prayer requests in that prayer room. They're putting their prayer requests on this prayer wall. I continue to encourage our church to do that. And I encourage our church to pray without ceasing on behalf of these things. Now, let me end with this. All these miracles that we read about this morning. Why does Mark highlight this leper? I think it's because this leper shows us how we get the authority of Jesus in our life. Look at him. First, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. As a beggar, he's desperate. God loves desperation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this leper's question, Jesus, I know you can, but I don't know if you're willing. Do you see his faith in that? He's asking for the impossible. Jesus, I know you can. I know you can make me clean. I know you can heal me. But then look at his humility. There's no sense of entitlement. There's no sense of, God, you owe this to me. Instead, he says, Jesus, if you're willing. And so often we just turn all this around. We, we, we approach God with this sense of entitlement that, God, you owe me. God doesn't owe us anything. And then do we have faith? Do we actually believe that God in our lives can do the impossible? Do we believe that God can move the mountain? Have we humbled ourselves like this leper? And as I highlighted earlier, here we see the heart of Jesus in verse 41, when Jesus looked at this, this leper at his feet, uh, begging him and talking this, it says that he, he was filled with compassion. His guts were literally being ripped out as he looked at this. And then I add to this, uh, what is leprosy? Well, in Jesus' day, lepers are the untouchables. You, you can't be by them. They can't be by you. You can't touch them, which is why lepers had to live uh, outside of towns in, in leper colonies, oftentimes which were in the desert. And so they're quarantined. They're not just quarantined for a few days or a few weeks. Many of them are quarantined for their whole life. And then anytime they entered uh, public, they had to announce to everyone uh, that they were present by saying unclean, unclean, unclean. And everybody would scatter because no one could touch them. So this man has spent his entire life without human touch. And Jesus gives this man exactly what he needs. The text says Jesus touched him. Jesus didn't need to. In fact, Jesus isn't even supposed to. Jesus is actually making himself unclean uh, when he touches this unclean man. But instead of this leper's unclean, making Jesus unclean, when Jesus touches him, Jesus clean makes the leper's unclean clean. This is unprecedented. What needs the touch of Jesus right now in this room? 
in your life? What needs the touch of Jesus in your marriage, in your family, in your attitudes? Maybe it's a secret and shameful thing. Maybe it's an addiction. What needs his touch? Peter is right when he says, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Everyone is looking for Jesus. Whether they know it or not, whether you know it or not, you're looking for him. Have you found him? Because not everyone found Jesus. But this leper did. Because he submitted to Jesus, he bowed his life to Jesus' authority and the kingdom of heaven broke out in his life. Is this leper truly a picture of your life? Do you believe right now that Jesus has absolute authority? Do you live right now as if Jesus has absolute authority? Or are you the authority? See, a lot of people will say, they'll even sing songs that I've thrown my life onto Jesus. But the question is, have you really? Are you desperate for Jesus? Have you thrown your life at Jesus' feet? Is your life bowed at, at the feet of this king? Do you trust him? Do you believe he can move a mountain? God, make us like this leper. And may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth, in our lives, in our hurts, in our wounds, as it is in heaven. And everybody said, amen.